All right. Good morning, church. Good to be here with you today. Um, yesterday had an amazing time up at Turn Lake. Uh, we married off Josiah and Ryan, now Martin. Uh, praising the Lord for that. He held the rain back. Uh, super excited for them. And I myself am now getting married in six days. Come on. I, uh, it's exciting. Uh, we are um, got a, a great lineup of speakers. Lisa mentioned it. Uh, it's just cool the way the Lord kind of moved things together for the month of June. Next week, we're going to have a team that was already coming up from our Karis Fellowship that's going to be working at Solid Rock, and their pastor, about my age, Daniel Cosentino, so we got a Frankino replaced by a Cosentino, so we're keeping it in the, uh, the Paisanos, but um, we, he's a great young speaker, heard him speak at conference last year, dynamic, and the week after that, really cool, it's going to be Father's Day on the 16th, and our executive director... Clancy Cruz, for the fellowship, was already planning on being here. He had asked, hey, can I crash the party at your church? I said, not only can you crash it, you can preach at it, brother. And he's going to be bringing his son, who's studying to become a pastor himself. And on Father's Day, they're going to be doing a father-son message right here. So really excited about the way the Lord put that together. And then on the 23rd, our own Dave Flam, who's becoming an elder here in July, is going to be preaching on the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a coincidence. Um, so I am, I am really just going to miss you guys while I'm on my honeymoon. Um, <laughs> I couldn't keep a straight face in the first service either. Well, I wanted to tell you guys a story this morning. It's a tale of two teachers. Tale of two teachers. When I was uh, in Bible school, I had this teacher who initially I was very impressed with. His name for this story, we'll call him Professor Saul, if you're, if you're tracking. Professor Saul had a silver tongue. He was a smooth operator. Very eloquent, uh, captivating speech when he would teach. Also super athletic. After class, he'd come out and play ultimate frisbee with us, football with the college students, and keep up. This is one of those guys with chiseled jaw, rippling pecs. He kind of looked like one of the Greek gods of old, probably doing chin-ups on the umbilical cord as he came out of the womb. He was just ready. And all of his children, beautiful blonde babies, looked and, and just like he did. And not only that, but his classes were slick. He had these great outlines, gripping illustrations. He'd get you laughing and then get you crying on this emotional roller coaster. Outwardly, very, very slick. The complete package for a teacher. But as I got to know Professor Saul outside of class, I started to see his character and his heart. He had a couple of bros, some jocks that were kind of on the inner circle with him, a kind of this little clique, if you will. And he loved those guys. He was tight with those guys. But for most of the rest of us, he didn't treat people very well outside of the classroom. Kind of had an arrogant and a condescending spirit um, that he would give off. And as I got to see into his heart became less impressed with his slick tongue and his blue eyes. You know the song, I see your true colors shining through. Had another teacher who initially I was not very uh, impressed with. On the outside, we'll call him Professor David. Now, Professor David um, was not an athlete at all. Middle-aged, overweight, sort of looked like a cross if you take Tweedledee. Okay, remember that from Alice Wonderland? Cross him with, he had the, the, the arms of the little, the dinosaur on Toy Story, Rex. Had these short little arms that he'd teach with. And then he had this hair parted right down the middle that looked like alfalfa. So you, you put that together and, you know, you get God's sense of humor. And um, Professor David did not have a slick tongue. He, 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 he talked like this with his lip. They kind of flapped. And he would say phrases like, as it were. Or, I wouldn't die on that rock. <laughs> and we would, we, would make, 
we would make these little tally marks on our Bible notes about all the phrases he would use and see who could like, catch the most of them. This is how attentive of a Bible school student your, your pastor was. But um, outwardly, he was not very impressive. But as I got to know the heart of Professor David outside of class and his character, what I saw was one of the most humble men I've ever met in my life. He was patient. He was kind, would invite us into his home, treated his wife like a queen. And he listened to every student that talked to him, regardless of who we were, treated us all the same. And to this day, when I think about people who truly have a relationship with Jesus, walk with him, know and love him. It's Professor David that comes to my mind. And when I look back on the impact that they had, I was, I was initially more impressed with Professor Saul, but it was Pastor, Professor David that left the lifelong impact in a positive way. What had I done? I judged based on the outward appearance, and boy, did I get it all. Have you ever done that? Judged a book by its cover to find out how off you were. This morning, we're going to see that God does the exact opposite. He doesn't see the things the way we see them, and he doesn't choose things the way we choose them. It's time to switch the crowns for Israel. We're going to see a tale of two kings this morning as well. If, if Israel had had a na- national election, Saul would have looked great on the ticket. He's a tall, dark, handsome man. He's rich, right? Yes, we can. He would have got a lot of votes. Probably not a lot of votes for David, the youngest of his family who's out chasing sheep in his dad's backyard. Not very impressive outwardly. But what we're going to see this morning, remember we said that Saul was essentially the choice of the people's choosing. The Hebrew was, his name was Shaul of their Sha'al, the, the choice of the people's choosing, the desire of their desiring. But God's choice, he says, was David. Remember when Saul sinned the first time when he disobeyed, God said to him, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. Or we said that better translation would be a man of my choosing. And this morning, we're going to see the descension of Saul and the ascension of David. Saul's stocks are going down, David's are going up, and we're getting an insight into the heart of our God and the way that he works. My prayer for us this morning is that we might learn to trust his heart, and that our hearts might become more like his. We're going to see two things this morning. We're going to see God provides a king, and then God prepares a king. God provides a king will be in 1 Samuel uh, 16, verses will be on the screen on the ESV primarily. You can follow along in your translation. We're going to see, first of all here, a personal loss for Saul. Look at verse 1. Uh, excuse me, for Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Remember last week he disobeys again and this time his crown's been removed. Have you ever been deeply disappointed by a close friend, a family member, you kind of feeling like this little guy? Um, Israel had, what, think about where Samuel's at. Israel had rejected him as, he was the last judge. They said, you're too old. We don't want you to judge us anymore. And then he's got his two sons, and then he goes, they go, they're too wicked. We don't want them to rule next. We want something completely different. And they demanded a king just like all the other nations around them. So then Saul, the man that Samuel himself appoints, is no better than, his, than Samuel's sons. And due to the continual rebellion and disobedience against the king of kings, his crown is removed. So here's Samuel. And you imagine he's feeling like an absolute failure. A failure as Israel's leader, a failure as a father, and a failure as a personal mentor to Saul. And the word here for grieve, he says, how long will you grieve over Saul? The word means to mourn for the dead. And that's what he's feeling in his heart. The nation is dead spiritually. 
Saul's throne is dead. Their relationship is dead. At the end of chapter 15, it says after their second spat, Samuel goes one way, Saul goes the other. They only live two miles away from each other and they never see each other again. That's the effect of sin. Sin breaks fellowship. It means separation. And that's what it causes through Saul's disobedience. And so God here, he tells Sam, he goes, man, there's a time to mourn and there's a time to act. The grieving time is over. And listen to me, Sam, my work with you is not done yet. I've got grace anew this morning for you. And here's what I've got. He says, fill your horn with oil and go. That's always an anointing of someone for service. I'll send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, this is interesting. He says, anointing a new king, I have provided. The, the Hebrew word here for I have provided would be ra'ah, which means I have seen. Because I've seen the one that I'm going to choose, the man of my own choosing. And we're going to see in this chapter today, the, these words come up a lot of looking and seeing that will track, that God doesn't see things the way that we see them. What's personal loss here for Samuel emotionally is a prophesied gain for Israel, prophesied gain for Israel. Now, any, if people who would have been reading this, if they're a good Hebrew Bible nerd, if they're a scholar that's tracking, they'd have gone, wait a second. He said he's a Bethlehemite. He's going to Jesse from Bethlehem to anoint a king. Wait a second. Bethlehem's in Judah because I know my Israeli geography. Now, here's why this is so key. You remember back in, rewind the clock back to Genesis chapter 49. Joseph is down in Egypt as God's placed him there. And he brings, there's a famine. He's now second in command of Pharaoh. And Jacob and his sons come down to Joseph because of that famine. And afterward, as they're there, at the end of Jacob's life, he blesses and, and makes prophecies to his 12 sons who eventually become the 12 tribes of this very nation that we're talking about this morning. And, and he says this in, to Jacob uh, in particular, and this is, or excuse me, to Judah. He says, the scepter, and hey, listen to this prophecy, the scepter. Already here, we see nods to a kingdom that's coming. That's what a scepter is, right? It's what a king uses. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So what do we see here? The kingly line is coming from Judah. And he says, it's not going to depart from Judah until what? Until the tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, he says, until the tribute comes. What does that word tribute mean? The Hebrew word here is Shiloh. It's a difficult word to translate. But, but the understanding here is it's to the one to whom it belongs. So he says, this scepter, the king, the king's rule, will stay with Judah until the one to whom the scepter ultimately belongs to, shows up on the scene. Now, who's that? Again, the good Hebrew scholar would be tracking, and they'd go back to the original promise in the garden, or what did God tell Adam and Eve after they sinned? I'm sending a deliverer who will crush the head of the serpent. He's going to be your Messiah. And so they'd be tracking with this and going, this is what God's saying. From the line of Judah will come this deliverer, will come this king, will come this Messiah. Now, they would see dimly in this progressive revelation. But then it says here, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. The words peoples here is nations. You remember the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. In you, Abraham, all the families, peoples, nations of earth shall be blessed. I'm not just here to bless you and your nation, but to bless all nations. This king, this Messiah that's coming is not just coming for Israel, but coming for the salvation of all peoples. You see this being laid out here. 
So when Samuel goes to Bethlehem in Judah to anoint a king, people will be going, wait a minute. Is this the Messiah? Is this the one who's going to rescue Israel at last? He's come. Now, of course, we know David's not the ultimate Messiah, but it is from his line. From the branch of Jesse. Now, Saul, on the other hand, the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. Saul comes from the tribe of Benjamin. So we would have known early on when his, his tribe, his, his crown's not going to last forever. He's not from the right tribe. We knew things were going south for, for poor Saul. So the next thing we're going to look at here is, do, do you see what I see? There are a lot of eyeballs going on in this passage. Just in the next two verses, we're going to see these, these words of looking and seeing six times. So follow me here. Samuel comes to Jesse to anoint a king. So when they, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so when Samuel sees the oldest of Jesse's sons, he goes, this has got to be it. Now, based on God's response here, he says, don't look on outward appearance or his height. Must, the oldest must have been really good looking. We usually are. I don't know if God just, he just he sets it up best the first and then it just kind of goes downhill from there. I, I'm not God. I don't, I don't decide these things. Um, so we got some kind of like Dwayne the Rock Johnson, some, some sort of look, a good looking physical specimen going on here. But God goes, no, no. Did you learn nothing from Saul? Don't be impressed by his height. Don't be impressed by how good looking or strong he is. I'm not concerned about his jawline. I'm concerned about his heart. And so he says, no. Now we see a lot of looking in this passage, but we're also going to see a lot of choosing. Look at verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. I imagine this like catwalk. These guys are walking up and down, trying on crowns as they're showing off. He goes, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Not God's choice. Next. Verse 9. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Nope. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Why is he specifying this language of choosing? What did God say? This is going to be a man of my choosing. God's still on the throne. He will give them the person he chooses. Now, verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? He goes, well, this is awkward. I was supposed to anoint a son of Jesse. And God said none of these are his choice. And Jesse goes, oh, that's right. There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. We'll wait. We'll wait. Now, there's a little bit of a Cinderella complex here, right? We're waiting for the prince, and, and she's out cleaning. She didn't even get put in the line. Jesse did not see what God saw in his own son. He didn't even see him fit to put in the kingly lineup. He was so disregarded, he's not even invited to the party. Now, notice here he says he's the youngest. Now, in Hebrew culture, oftentimes the firstborn, as, as in many ancient cultures, would have preference. They would be the one to receive the family blessing, the inheritance, the land, right? Which, again, as a firstborn, I think that's really wise. Uh, uh, but God would often, what, what does God do? He goes, I don't see things the way you see them. I and often we see in Scripture him choosing the younger to bless or the younger to rule over the older. We see with Abel. God looks with favor on Abel, not the older Cain. He, he looks at Jacob, who's the younger of the two twins, just by a little. 
But it's, but it's not Esau that ends up with the birthright and the blessing. It's Jacob, the, the father of Israel. And then Joseph. There are a lot of parallels with Joseph and David. One of them being he's one of the youngest sons who ends up ruling over the oldest sons. And neither of the older brother sets take it very well, as we'll find out in our, in our story. So what's God doing here? I see things differently than you do. Look at verse 12. He sent and brought him in. Here comes David. Now, where would you expect the plot line to go? Plot line to go? Where does the weight kind of carry us here? God didn't choose the handsome ones, the tall ones, the buff ones. So wouldn't you expect David to come in looking like Quasimodo? Like you would expect the ugly duckling, right? Not the good looking ones. How about the uggo? Like that's what you would expect. If I'm writing the story, that would preach. But look at what happens. Now he was ruddy, had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. The Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. He's a Calvin Klein model. Like, that doesn't fit the story. He's supposed to be ugly. And it says here he's ruddy. Oh, oh, oh. He says he's ruddy. Uh, that word is the same word used for Esau, which can mean, could, could tell us that God loves gingers too. That, that could be the moral of the story. I don't know. But, but this word can also be can translate in fair-skinned. So, and in that culture, that was a, that was a sign of beauty. So what, all that we know is being communicated here is David's a handsome little dude. That, that's, that's the bottom line. And here's, the, here's the point. The point isn't that God only uses ugly people. Right? It's not just the more unattractive you are, the, the more godly you are. That's not the principle here. The point is physical appearance doesn't matter. It, it, it's, it's not, it's, don't worry what they look like on the outside at all. What's their heart? That's what I care about. That's what I see. So here's the question for us. Do we see what God sees? <laughs> have, have you ever judged someone? There's, the, there's always a delay. That's okay. Um, have you ever judged someone externally and found out just how wrong you were? You judged a book by its cover one way or the other, impressed or not impressed. Then you got to know the person. First Corinthians tells us the way God sees things. Very different than the way the world does. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Few of you. Doesn't mean that, that God doesn't save the wise or the powerful. But it tends to be, tends to be those are not the ones that come to God. Why? Well, look at what he says. He said, God chose the, thing, the, the things the world considers foolish. Why? In order to shame those who think they are wise. Who think they are wise. And he chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. So why would God do this? Why would he set this thing up in a way that he chooses the lowly to shame those who think they're all that? He tells us in verse 29, as a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. You see, God wants to work in a way in which there is no doubt where the boasting lies. Do you remember what he did with, the, with Gideon? And he keeps thinning out the army until there's only 300 men. And he goes, now we're ready. Because when you win the battle, you're going to have no question as to who really won the war, where the power really came from. It wasn't you and your pathetic little army. It's creator God. And I think this is why he uses the church to build his kingdom. He doesn't use powerful empires or army or brute force. He uses a bunch of random people who can't even decide on the color of the carpet. This is not the way I would have done it. If I'm building the kingdom, if I'm building the church, this is not my method. 
But God says, my wisdom looks like foolishness to the world. And what looks like weakness is actually my power. So we think about this as we search for a family pastor, as we put leadership into place at our church, Paul's not saying, well, just take the one with the lowest SAT scores. Take the weakest, take the ones that are least attractive. But what he is saying is we shouldn't be swayed by how tall they are, by the degrees that they put on their resume, by the eloquence in their sermon. I want to know what their heart is like. Are they a servant? Do they love? Do they have the heart and attitude of Jesus? We've got to be careful not to choose the Saul's of the world. And the bigger point, though, the bigger point is this. This is, this is the next verse here in Corinthians. God has united you with Jesus. Amen. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us whole, pure, and holy. He freed us from sin. So, so where does true wisdom lie? Where does true goodness lie? Where does true power lie? It's not in me. It's in Jesus. And that's why it says, therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about him. See, it's also, what do we say? It's not that David's not a sinner and Saul is. This is not about finding the good people. (laughs) Spoiler alert, there are no good people. The point is God wants to show you the one, the only one who's truly wise and powerful and holy. And God says, I'm gonna use you in a way that when you go out and make disciples, there's gonna be no doubt where the power lies. So there'll be no doubt where the glory goes, where the boasting goes. God says, I'm looking for someone who will trust in my name. That's what he's looking for. And we're going to see this in the next chapter. When he slays that giant, he says, I've come not with an army, but in the name of the Lord. He wants people like that. God provides a king. And then we're going to see here that he prepares a king. Last verse in this part of the story, he says, Samuel took the horn of oil. Anointing that leader, right? It's a symbol of the Spirit. Anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Spirit rushes on him. And if you're tracking with that language, that's the exact same thing he said with Saul. The Spirit rushed on Saul as well. The Spirit is God's personal presence who's inside of David just like he was inside of Saul. To give him the power and the wisdom and the goodness to lead. Just like we said from the Spirit. But listen, it's up to each king, just like it's up to each one of us as to whether or not we're going to listen to that spirit, whether or not we're going to look to that spirit, obey that spirit as he leads. Because Saul didn't, and there was major consequence. Now, what we're going to see as we move forward in this story is David is given this spirit. Why? So that he can endure great conflict. Listen, he did not get the spirit just to be able to do some giant slaying. Not like the Incredible Hulk, so he could just go out and smash some fools. He gives him the spirit not, listen, to, not to save David from conflict, but to give him the strength to be victorious through the conflict. It's the same exact thing we see. Remember the scene with Jesus. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove onto him. Why? So that he save Jesus from suffering? No. To empower him to endure the greatest suffering than any human's ever known, to bear the weight of the sins of the world on his shoulders. Now, David doesn't actually sit on the throne for 25 years. 25 years from the time he's anointed until he's put on the throne. It's the exact same amount of time, interestingly enough, that Abraham was promised a son and then received that son. God's promises usually don't come overnight. 
There's great conflict. There are great trials. There are great spiritual warfares ahead for David. He had to be prepared for his role. And the first lesson was not an easy one. Now notice this, the end of this part, it says the spirit rushes on David. Now contrast that with verse 14. The spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Spirit comes on David, leaves Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now what's going on here? It's another weird one. Spirit is sent from the Lord to torment Saul? Now we don't know exactly what's going on here. The story doesn't really expound. But what we do see is we've seen the downward spiral of Saul. And we see consequence and discipline for that disobedience. But I think what we also see here is a potential mercy. That Saul might come to the end of himself. He's lost his crown. But it's not too late, the sign of death, to repent and return to his God. Now, I love this. It says this harmful spirit descends on him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Oh, really? <laughs> Did I miss that? Right? Like, I, I would imagine if a spirit is tormenting me, I'm going to know it's happening, right? Like, hey, dude, you got some ketchup on your shirt or something. Like, oh, I didn't see that, right? Now, maybe they're just pointing out where the spirit came from. I don't know. I didn't write this thing. Verse 16. Now, let the Lord, our, let our Lord, talking about Saul, now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So the servants say, I know what you need. You need some musical therapy. We can use this. We've got to find someone who can play the lyre. Now, this lyre was sort of a, an ancient guitar of sorts. They're finding, saying, find the, the Hebrew Hendrix, and he will, uh, he'll hook you up. Now, and this, um, actually, I didn't, have our, I didn't have time to get it up and stuff, but if you go onto YouTube, there is this, uh, there's this clip of this guy. He's playing a 3,000-year-old lyre, and it's really pretty uh, the way it comes out. I don't know how you tune a 3,000-year-old instrument, but um, it's, it's a cool one. I'd check out, but not during the sermon, please, and thank you. Verse 17, so Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. So go get him. And one of the young men answered, behold, I have seen. So Saul says, provide for me. There's that ra'ah, go and look for this person. There's that looking language again. And one of the young men answered, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence. The Lord is with him. Now, I don't know how we would have known all this stuff about David. It was pretty obscure. That's what the text says. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. Just happens to know of Jesse, or excuse me, of David. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine, a young goat, and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. Now tuck that away. Send, the father sends the son with bread, wine, and a sacrifice. We'll come back. Verse 21, and David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. What do we say about armor bearers? They're your right-hand man. The Robin to your Batman. Saul and, and, and David are going to be close. And Saul said, said to Jesse, saying, let David remain in my service. I like this guy. He's found favor in my sight. And so he does. Whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon him, David took a lyre and played it with his hand. And so Saul was refreshed and was well. And the harmful spirit departed from him. Remember when Joseph was summoned, when Pharaoh had nightmares, he needed someone to interpret his dream. And the cupbearer just happened to know, had met Joseph in prison, and says, he could interpret your dream. And God uses him strategically in that royal court to what eventually leads to the rescue of all of Israel. Here you see, once again, one of these servants just happens to know David, brings him into the king's presence 
bonds with the king, develops a relationship. Won't that be key as things get left of center down the road? And here he's put in the royal court. He's been given this military training. This is all part of God's rescue plan. He's sovereignly working to put people in place. Now, it's funny because Saul has no idea, but in this moment, he is ironically depending on the very one who's going to take his crown from him, right? God's got a little sense of humor going on here. How strange of God to choose the king of Israel from among the sheepfold uses the runt of the litter, one who was an afterthought of his own earthly father, but his heavenly father saw him and knew him. Even stranger still, the true king of Israel, the king of kings, he comes down to earth in a thing that the sheep would have eaten out of. Savior of the world comes as a lower class carpenter. God does not see things, does not choose to do things the way we see them and would choose to do them. We're impressed by the Saul's. God says, I want to use the heart of a David. Just like David, when he comes to Saul, notice we said we'd come back to this verse. Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat, which would be used as a sacrifice, and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. You see the father sending his son with bread, wine, and a sacrifice. A picture of our Lord Jesus, who came... He came as the ultimate realization of this, that he, he said, what did he say in that last night with his disciples? My body broken for you. My, my blood spilled out for you. So they drink the bread, drink the wine and eat the bread. And then he says, I myself will be this sacrifice. It's a beautiful example of the father sending the son to one who has Saul become, his enemy. And Jesus sends, God sends Jesus to his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus comes despised by the world in order to love and rescue the very ones who nail him to that cross. What an example to us that we too have been sent into this world to love those who will not love us in return. We're called to be salt and light. You know what Jesus said? They hated me. And if you go in my name, with my word and my truth, they're going to hate you too. That's the promise. You really preach the gospel. There'll be haters out there. Is there a relationship in your life? Maybe, maybe like David and Saul, it started well, but it has gone off the rails. Trials and conflicts in your life. We're called to be a source of comfort to those who will end up chucking spears at us. As we'll see with Saul. Just play your liar, do some dodging. Now, hear me on this. We're not, this is not a call here. If you're in an abusive relationship, that you have to stay put. Love does the, the right thing, the best thing for someone else. And sometimes that means getting out. We're speaking up. But what we are called to is love, even those who have most wronged us. How in the world do we do that? How in the world do we endure conflict like David did, like our Savior did? Well, what did God give him? God didn't say, David, go figure it out. His very spirit rushed upon him, gave him the power to do that. And we have not been left without resource too. We've been given God's power. In Ephesians uh, 3, Paul prays this beautiful prayer. He says, I pray and his glorious, unlimited resources will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. He says, I'm going to give you the power to do what I've called you to do. The God who spoke the universe into existence says, I'm going to put my very spirit in you to accomplish everything I've called you into. And he will never leave you. In the Old Testament, they'd come and go from these saints. 
But for us today in the body, the Holy Spirit is a permanent part of our lives. We are one with him. Look at Ephesians 1. When you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own. How? By giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee. Here's our promise, that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. Why did he do this? So that we would praise and glorify him. He said, this Spirit is gonna be a down payment to show you that I'm coming back and everything I've promised you, I'm gonna give to you, that I will get you through this. And who gets the credit? Who gets the glory? And whom do we boast? The one from whom the power comes from. Not only does he give us his power, he gives us his promise. We get a crown too, just like David. Now the prize awaits me, Paul said. This is the end of his life, the last letter that we have from him before he died. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. This is so beautiful. Like David, we're going to receive a crown one day. And what's, it, what's that crown for? He says it's a reward for those who eagerly look to see what God sees, and that is that the precious Lord Jesus is on his way back for us. In the meantime, like David, we're going to experience a lot of conflict in this world, a lot of trouble, a lot of suffering, a lot of spiritual warfare. But just like David, he has not left us alone. He has given us his very presence. He walks with us every step of the way. Nay, he carries us. Why? Not to save us from conflict, but so that we can endure great Conflict. Two chapters earlier, Paul says this. We have this presence of God with us. Always remember that Jesus Christ, the descendant of King who? King David. And that line, that promised line from Judah, was raised from the dead. This is the good news I preach. He says, you want to know what good news is? That Jesus is alive. The only hope we have to make it through anything, to be saved from our sin, to endure any kind of conflict, is the fact that Jesus is no longer in the grave, but he lives, and not just lives somewhere in the sky, but lives in me today. This is a trustworthy saying. If we die with him, we'll also live with him. We've died with Jesus, Romans says. We were buried. Our old sinful nature was crucified and buried with him, left in the grave, but we weren't. We were raised with Jesus to a new life, united with him, his spirit in us. And he says, if we endure hardship, or you could say there, when we endure hardship, what happens? We will reign with him. He will give us his spirit to allow us to endure anything that he causes and asks us and sends us to walk through. And what's the promise on the other end? We will reign with him. There's a king word. You know what's coming for you and I? We to rule and reign the universe flying around with Jesus. How sweet is that? That's what we have to look forward to. So this is what God gives us. He says, I'm going to save you. I'm going to give you my personal presence in you to sustain you. And at the end of it, you get to rule and reign with me. That's a good deal. But he says, because I'm the one that did it all, it's my power, it's my love, it's my strength in you. You know what's going to happen, what Revelation says? You get to that point, and you take that crown, and you put it on the foot of the cross. All the glory goes to the one to whom has done all of the work. We just get to be his vessels. These are promised words that we have to cling to while we wait for this crown. So we endure the cross the road of our master and savior and king. I want us to to end today by praying the words of the most familiar psalm there is, Psalm 23, written by the shepherd, King David. 
I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. We didn't, we kind of missed on this the last time. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to pray this together. These are words of comfort that David, a shepherd, would have been very intimately familiar with. And I want us to pray these today. Maybe you're in the midst of a great conflict, a great suffering, a great spiritual battle going on in your life right now. We need to declare these words as true. As we declare these together, say these to God, saying this is true of you. I believe this of you. I'm going to embrace these. Even on a day like today when I don't feel like it's true, I'm going to declare it's true trust that you're going to do the work in my heart, that I might see things the way you see, that I might choose things the way you choose. And would you stand with me? We're going to pray through this psalm, the 23rd psalm. Let's pray this together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.